Alex Meyer is a husband and father to two boys. He's a singer-songwriter, producer, trumpet, and guitar player, and in the coming months, after years of planning and planning to do so, Alex and his family will find themselves moving from his native Chicago to Nashville, Tennessee, to pursue a full-time career in music. Alex is a well-known fashion and art photographer, as well as the creative director at Boulevardier, a custom men's clothing company in Chicago. In what spare time he can find, he loves to pursue athletic endeavors like boxing and rowing. He's a good friend of mine, and he's the author of the theme song you're listening to right now. Alex, welcome to the No First Podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I'm thrilled, man. This is going to be a good conversation. That looks so beautiful. What's on the head badge? This is GNL. So after Leo Fender sold Fender to CBS, he started, I don't know if the next one, I think the next one he started was Music Man. And then after that, he started GNL, which stands for George and Leo. So George Fullerton, which is one of his longtime collaborators. And this is the guitar. Like the, This is the last guitar he made, or the last update he made to like the Stratocaster design. Wow. The guitar I ever bought. So how's it going? I haven't seen you in so long. I know. You look great. Like the glasses. Thank you. I I feel great. I really do feel great. So I think we should start with folks that are listening to this just heard that I have a new theme song. Yeah. And it came about, as most things with you and I do, we were just catching up and the offer is always there. You and I have a Spotify playlist of songs that I think I mostly put together, but that, that have, and then there was like a lyric exchange via email. You have lots of collaborators and I'm thrilled to count myself among them, but this was effectively you offering to collaborate. And then as you tend to do, you went off, you rabbit hold, you figured out what my sound is to you. And you came back with some stuff and what you came up with is so emblematic of where I want to be as a host. I, now I feel like I have to live up to my theme song. <laughs> <laughs> now you can't say, oh, it's some, it just, I just got it from some library. Now you got it. Right. And that was the <laughs> other one wrote it for me. <laughs> that was exactly right. That was the other thing that like a, pressure. a couple people sent me Instagram ads that had my podcast theme as the ad music. And I was like, oh, I got to change this because I got it from a service and I'm sure that those brands got it from a service. So it felt like they got it from someone like me. Yeah. (laughs) Probably so. Thank you so much for what you wrote. Oh yeah, man. I'm happy. I'm I'm, I'm really happy. I think it captured. It's amazing. I was like, I'm going to, because after you sent me your track, I realized, okay, like where the reason, the way I was taken, I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want you to be a downgrade in energy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Here's our new track and even less, I'm like, oh, that's awful. And then I tried to up tempo like the old thing I wrote, and I was like, you know what? Let's just write something new. Let's write it like the second song that that band played. Like, right. That, that was their opener. I'm like, let's play their second song. Yeah, that was the song that you wrote for when people were milling in. You're the kind. <laughs> that's the kind of band that like, there's music yeah. playing when people are arriving, and then they, they kick drink, it off. And then yeah, yeah, they get their drink, they find their date, they want to take, they want to dance. And those are the two instrumental songs that that band plays before. They then introduce. Thank y'all for coming out tonight. Right? Yeah, yeah. Please put your hands together. Please put your hands together for the one, the only, Mister Alex P. Meyer. Give it up, yeah! From coast to coast, he's the host with the most. You know him. You love him. You want him in your life. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. (laughs) How about a big round of the hand for Rodney? (laughs) He's brand new to the band, folks. He's never even met me. Last night, last night, (laughs) all the way from Chattanooga. We got him on Kazoo. (laughs) (laughs) Those were the days. I've been to a few shows like that. Those like old timey Willie Nelson gets introduced like that. I think. A couple of his shows, Lyle Lovett gets introduced like that. And then there's, I went to a Charles Brown show in DC that was like that. We're like, 
he comes out with the cape on and all that stuff. It's amazing. And that's what, when you're involved in a community, really any kind of community, but obviously music is the only one where you have a moment where there's a, a full expression of energy. And all the arts, you build a community, really any industry. But if there's something about music where you build a community and then you get to collaborate live with people. Totally. And that's something that I mean, I'm thrilled for in Nashville. Mm. There's something about that super fan, that, that sense of the whole audience knows when to say, hey, the whole audience knows when to jump up and participate. Have you seen, by the way, One Night in Miami, the, the movie about Sam Cooke and Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown and Malcolm X all in a hotel room? No, I saw the trailers for that. I haven't checked it. Yeah, Leslie Odom doesn't, like all of the award shows for that, Leslie Odom's, the clip that they're showing is Sam Cooke, the sound goes out at a concert that Malcolm X was at. And he just walks around the mic and he starts singing. That's the sound of the man working on the chain gang. And he, he oh, goes, just sing, uh, sing it acapella. Uh, yeah, and, he's, awesome. and he gets, he's got his foot stomping and he's, his hands clapping and he gets the whole audience to participate in that like call and response. And it's- That's so cool. Those are like the transcendental moments that like you just don't get very often in life. And I mean, especially when it's a lockdown. But, um, yeah, and I think that you and I can relate to this because we grew up in church. Even if it's just like some corny white kids youth group, there's like something to that- everybody breathing the same air, taking in the same information and spraying the same information right back. And like that feeling is so needed. And I think that a year of not having it has really hurt me. (laughs) I don't care about like what it means to society or to the world, but on a personal level, like I got it at least once a month somewhere at a movie, at a concert, at a church going experience, at a bar or a restaurant there's it's really hard to match that as you said it's transcendental touching the profane something that is it's hard to find experiences that allow you to forget about the material world and think about something that's even bigger it's crazy it's because when it hits you like it'll stay with you the rest of your life you'll remember that singular moment wow there was something that happened there and i wonder if i could touch it again you know? talk to me we've done this before you and i collaborated on a basil hayden's video and you like expertly scored that. It felt very Hendrixy. It felt very almost swampers, like soupy and Southern. It felt like a bourbon commercial. <laughs> it right did. On. Yeah. And that's, uh, I, I met, that was for the bar seat. Or something like that. Yeah. Name? yeah. It was, it was the five uh, o'clock it, bar cart from Greta de Perry. Something like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and Greta, who I shot for a magazine actually prior. So I was happy that I, I knew her from before because I was able to build a song that, that kind of captured what, it felt like when I was on her in, in her workshop. And then since I knew you so well at that point, I was like, oh, if I can co- somehow capture those two energies, that, that's essentially what the song, like the A side the, or the, the A idea, like the intro idea, is very much you. And then the B idea is very much her. So like they, they and then when it bring when it turns around to the beginning, that's and, like and the coalescence of it. It picks up a lot when Greta starts when like the sparks start flying in the video <laughs> and Greta actually working, it's me opening bottles of bourbon and Greta like going to town on this right. steel rod. And, and so, so I'm like, like slow and soupy and. <laughs> well, yeah, it was like the shot of you, like smelling the whiskey and like, oh yeah, exactly. Like swirling it and she's like sweating and cutting. And yeah. I'm like, oh, no, no, but she, her job is physical by nature. Mm-hmm. Your job is spiritual by nature. Spiritual, yes, indeed. Is it not? Well, I'm an I'm I, an evangelist. Yep, that's exactly you, right. You, you try to get to know someone on the deepest level. Ever since I met you, you asked me like insanely deep questions. The first time I talked to you, I was like, "Oh, this guy wants to know," and I'm happy. No one really asks you those kind of things. Those, those <laughs> refreshing and shocking. Yeah, Alex, what is your inner sanctum? Where do you go? <laughs> cool. So tell me about this new one because we started out. And and just to be totally frank with folks, and some of you out there listening know this about me, that like my love of mid to late 60s, early to mid 70s, funk and soul is pretty deep. I used Sissy Strut by The Meters for a long time as my like MySpace page song. And it was my uh, theme song in in grad school. I had to do a video and we had to pick a song for our background music. And that was my song. and, And do it. Oh, you're out. I lost the the guitar. There it is. What happened? Banana bomb. Do it anymore? 
Yeah, I can hear it now. And then it starts out with a high. Yeah, it's such a great like <laughs> yeah. opening the whole thing. And so I sent Alex this song that it comes on all the time on whatever mix I put on in the car when I'm with my wife and my kids. And they always say that everything I do gonna be funky by Lee Dorsey feels so like me. That was the only instruction I gave you was, was Lee Dorsey. I, I, like one thing that's always stuck about me or stuck up to me about you is that you really are naturally a host. And when you think of the great hosts, you think of late night shows. Sure. And I was like, what if I could get a late night show vibe? Get kind of like that energy of here's something culturally important from someone who wants to present it to you, right? Here's a gift. It's the like, show is starting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like get to your seats, close yeah. your tab, the show is starting. And that was the kind of energy I was trying to get. And then, but I, I still wanted to pay homage to your love of roots and, and soul music. And so that the C section and the, like, like the bridge or the middle section, rather, I threw in a lot of like really far out chords in there and some voices that were atypical. You probably wouldn't find in a normal kind of like intro song just to give it a kind of off. I don't think you're going to be using the, the whole thing. I oh, I, I will use parts of it throughout yeah. the, the course of this, of this venture. The other thing that I'm hoping that you and I eventually get to, and I'm putting it on record now, is I'm hoping that we find a way to add vocals at some point in time, that we can like actually make this part of our adventure. Yeah, let's do it, man. Let's rock. Let's write more, right? Why not? Anyone that wants to do music is... I'm always down. It's yeah. you're in, and this is something that I'm, it's actually embarrassing for me. I'm not very knowledgeable on like, like the stats of the music of music history. That's something that just for always people would ask me, you know, whether I was in jazz band or in a metal band or whatever, Oh, this album, this guy played this part. I'm like, oh, I don't know their names. I know what the part is. I know what the sounds are and the notes are. I, I just didn't know the guy. And that's something that for some reason, it's really hard for me to remember. That's so work with someone like you who essentially is, an encyclopedia for music and for American culture is that'd be great. Yeah. That's so funny to hear you say that like that, because I don't feel like necessarily like an encyclopedia. No, you don't, you have like stories for your facts. That's to me is encyclopedia. <laughs> sure. Like this what happened this day. And he said something very interesting that day. It's like, you have, that's an encyclopedia of these things. So let's get into, let's get into playing. I want to hear you play. Can you, so can you talk about can you play any of what you wrote for the theme song and can you talk about it yeah i can play it it's uh it's mostly horn parts but i can um <laughs> figure it out here so. it's mostly horns max i don't know if you know that <laughs> but, uh, i mean it's just i won't be able to probably capture feel so it's for your song it's pretty the chords underlying it are pretty straightforward it just goes <laughs> So it, it's like the when a lot of old funk songs, you would just be vamping on it. And that's what I was doing in the beginning. And the horn part over that is. And it's not anything fun, but the thing is when you have a horn section, it gives a lot of energy and it was fun to write a horn section part. I have, I have, that's my first time actually writing horns. Oh, I'm honored. It's, right. It sounds so fantastic. You said something about the B section or the C section? Yeah. Can you talk to me about that? This is how I like to write music and write songs. The, there's usually an, a first idea. And the first idea is really important for everyone. Like the first sentence of a book, like the cover photo of, of something. Like it's really important that the first musical idea is, especially if it's a first-time listener, that it's open, that people feel like, okay, I'm allowed to listen to this. It's not too smart for me. It's not trying to make me feel <laughs> dumb. You know what I mean? It's like, not some avant-garde thing. It's something that's inviting me in. It's saying, keep listening. So I try to put the, something at the beginning, very interesting and possibly exciting if you can, but if it's a sad or slow song, you don't want it to be exciting. And then you find something that also that they can remember, because if it's a verse, you're going to hear it again. And you want that if it's re written really well, they'll be able to sing it with you the second time. The second, like when that second verse comes in, their brain will go, I remember this part. I want to sing this part. And that's if you have a good melody. And then you, you balance that with a variation of that idea, or you introduce a, yeah. a new idea and you play those two against each other, creating tension and the first verse, first chorus, second verse, second chorus. And so at the end of that second chorus, 
the brain is usually like, okay, I got it. I got what the main idea of the song is. I know where I'm supposed to sing. I know where I'm supposed to listen. What next? And that's when you introduce, you know, a, a middle section, right? Typically. And that's where you're actually allowed to take things pretty far out because if someone's listened to that long, their brain is actually now in a different mode. They're trying to, they're, they're saying like, throw me something new, throw me something interesting. Yeah. And that's what I tried to do for your song where it goes like, um, you know, and so it's very much more dissonant, much more tension in that. And then the horn parts in that section, I stacked the melody so that there's notes that are like right next to each other. So it goes like, it's like, uh, and it's a whole tone scale to us. I did something like, but in a key of A, so it's, so it's very dissonant, very weird, but if you stack it in the right way, the, your ear won't go, that sounds terrible. Your, your ear will say, wow, that's interesting. I can't believe I, I got through that. Because you're asking your brain to process this. Yeah. You're asking your brain, hey, this is something that's slightly challenging to listen to. It's not, an a, it's not the A section. It's not the verse. And so you, you build enough tension and you got to be smart about it. So by the time that's done, they're so thrilled to get back to that chorus again. Oh, the chorus. I remember that was 15 seconds ago. I'm thrilled to be back here. Thanks for that journey. <laughs> And so then if you have a, a, the song that's right there, it's emotional to get back there. Only a little yeah. bit. Yeah. For, yeah, good, yeah. For, for great songs, you cry, but for fine normal songs, you go, great. I'm back at the chorus. I think that this was something that kind of came about as a result of the great improvisers that came out of the New Orleans jazz school, the Louis Armstrongs, the Ella Fitzgeralds, the, that you play the song straight. So people get it. Mm -hmm. And then you mess with it. The rest of the song. Can you show me or play for me an example of like how you play something that you want to establish in the ear and then mess with it a little bit? Can you do that? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll do it something like we'll just keep it in blues since people are pretty comfortable with that. I'll do it. that's very straight that's straightforward no ear will object to that so <laughs> what you try to do and what you want to do so let's say i played that that was the first and that's maybe that's, Woo! that's yeah that was great that's, she's really gone and singing something like that mm -hmm. but if you want to change that there's two ways you can change it you can change the melody but play the same rhythm or you can change the rhythm and keep the same melody or you can change everything all together and just go and what you want to do is you introduce small amounts of changes so that the listener is not surprised by where you're taking them. It's, it's unless it's something specifically where you're meant to challenge the listener, like a jazz showcase, it's good to take them slowly. And then you can see how far you will, they're paying attention. You see them <laughs> losing interest, bring it back. And you can also play with dynamics too to make them usually. So if I'm playing, <laughs> people start listening they lean closer yep. in and then and then playing with dynamics yeah. playing with uh, you say they lean there. i actually lean back i i kind of like i kind of wanted to like soak it up yeah. sounds like john lee hooker too and he'll do she's really gone and then he'll mess with the words and he'll say she's so far gone even though he yeah, it's yeah. she's really gone she's really gone she's really gone first verse the second verse he'll throw in new modifiers and it's is she really gone or is she so far gone john and you're like no, that's artistry, right? No, that's fine. up to you. And it, and he's kind of singing it. So I'm assuming you know what I'm talking about. There's always exactly. a sly undertone. I'm sure you felt the way I feel right now. Right? That's essentially what art is. There's, there, I know there's other people out there that feel the way I'm feeling. And, I'm, I know, and I want to tell them that they're not alone. Yeah. You've really yeah. captured something with this song. I'm thrilled that you like it. And uh, I hope your listeners enjoy, enjoy the new intro. And so this is where you do Twitch? Let's talk about yeah. that for a sec. Can we talk oh, about that? Yeah. You are like twitch famous yeah <laughs> no i was affiliate for a little bit but it's, i realized it's not very hard to be a twitch affiliate um i was like oh i'm an affiliate i checked my email and then i clicked on the hashtag of twitch affiliate and i was like 400 people were approved that day i'm like oh okay <laughs> low bar that's totally fine but i used to i did it right at the beginning of the the lockdown and i, I would do i'd play some games with people and there was a good amount of people coming and made a fun little community and then 
I would do these TED talks because it's mostly like young guys that would come onto my Twitch stream. And so I would always try to help give them advice on like things that I wish that I did. And now it's morphed completely into music stream. So I'll compose and edit and arrange live and I'll co-write with the viewers. So I'll ask them for lyrics or I'll ask them for like, what kind of arrangement should we make this quiet? Should we make this? That's so cool. It'll be a piano. It's really, and people get really into it. I co-wrote a song with an entire group the first time I did it on music Mondays and it was, and I really like the song. So I'll probably be releasing that in about a month and it's called doors are all closed. And then, wow. And it's, it's some people throw threw down some crazy introspective. Yeah. Lyrics. Have you done it anywhere else? Have you tried to do it on Instagram live or on yeah, clubhouse? So I, I just started doing it on Instagram live because figuring out the audio to sure. send outboard audio into a, a phone was difficult, but I finally figured it out. So I'll be doing that. The problem with Instagram live, is that you can't share your screen. So they have no idea what I'm clicking. So they're watching me, they're typing. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure if, or rather last time I did it, there weren't many, wasn't as engaging. Let's <laughs> put it that way. But I haven't done the clubhouse one yet. Just gonna count. I'm, I haven't really listened to anything yet though. Everything's live. You can do YouTube live. You can do Instagram live, Twitch. Why do you think that is? Why are we going to this era where there will be not just, 300 channels on your cable TV, there will be an infinite number of live channels. I think, I think there's two things. One, the technology finally caught up that we're able to do it. So obviously Zoom, when I was working in software, Zoom was one of our partners. And I, so we've been working on them for a long time and they're, they have a lot of really smart people there and their product managers really care about their product. And so they wanted something stable. And that was the biggest impediment to most people because Twitch was too, or for most people, Twitch is too intimidating. There's a lot to learn for broad, you know, it's called broadcasting essentially because you have to worry about bitrate and audio samples and all that kind of weird stuff. Where Zoom is very easy to understand. It's very user-friendly and it does a lot of the stuff automatically for you. But I think, so one, one of it is the technologies there. And then the second part, I think it's a backlash, maybe not a backlash, but I think it's a rebound from like the hyper video production from 2016 to 2019. Everything had these big video releases. And then what you saw with between like TikTok and Instagram stories and, and Snapchat was stuff that was less, you know, things started going into less polished. Snapchat kind of started that Instagram uh, stories and TikTok kind of picked up where that left off with like less polished, more real, the better. And it's like, well, what's less polished than something live? And so that's like the natural extension of like people are craving, especially I think older unvarnished. Yeah. yeah. And Gen Xers, I think we're all like, okay, like We'd like something a little more depth, please. Yeah. We were looking at old pictures today, this, this morning, uh, my wife and I, she's pulling old photos from her, from her phone from not that long ago, 10 years ago. And what were we doing? <laughs> like these hyper filtered pictures and the tilt shifts and the, yeah, all the stuff that, what were that we doing. Yeah. And now yeah. I feel like the quality of the lens, you can get what you're looking at. Yeah. Captured in your hand and broadcast it quickly and easily to the world. And so there's still one of the things that I constantly am asking you about is technology, especially as it relates to photography, because I'm so lost. I'm still working with a 7D from Canon from 2013 or 14. And it takes yeah. the kind of picture that I like to take. You want it smaller, I'm assuming. I always wanted to put it in my pocket, but that's probably like a lost reality for me at this point and my phone what do they say that the best camera is the one that you have so right, right i'm always i'm never without my phone so it tends to be the camera that i use the most and i've learned how to manipulate it in the way that i want and at the same time this lack of manipulation is attractive to me i haven't figured it out yet obviously i i would probably be more comfortable sharing a, a less varnished version. And people have said about this show, no first, that it's too varnished, that it's clearly been edited and there's an almost uh, throwback vibe to the voice that comes through at the beginning. We're, we're in like this era of production where things are supposed to feel, and even with Taylor Swift and the, the guys from The National and Jack Antonoff, their stuff feels like it was recorded in a cabin. And it was in fact recorded in a cabin. And that's... <laughs> You know, yeah, a great cabin, but still a cabin. Yeah. <laughs> probably, yeah. yeah, probably a cabin that you or I will never be able to afford. But nonetheless, there's that rudimentary quality to yeah. 
to a lot of what I'm responding to anyway in culture. And I think people are hypersensitive to, especially young people to like authenticity. I remember hearing that word a lot. It just doesn't feel authentic. I I don't know anyone that's authentic. So I don't know why we're obsessed with it. And I think maybe that's why. Because we right. all know deep down that we're hypocrites. And so we're trying to find something that's actually pure and true. Neither does this Mexican food. It's not very authentic. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> right. It well, says authentic on yeah. the box, but it's not. <laughs> I'm calling old El Paso. Well, like what, <laughs> what, what is authenticity though? Like that's, a, and there you go with the stupid de- depth of question. I was watching uh, the first episode of the Hemingway documentary from Ken Burns that just came out last week. And I was like, people know how to dress. Like there, there was no other option. You had a pair of pants that fit. You had a vest that fit. You had a, sh- a shirt that fit. You had a tie that fit your, fit your shirt and a jacket. And it was probably all, if not made for you, it was off the rack and then tailored for you in the shop that you bought it. And you bought it all in one place and it was meant to like go together. And all of it was like the materials were true. And I was sitting there wearing like a fleece jacket, a pair of running shorts. And I was like, this is all plastic (laughs) i'm wearing plastic on my whole body and and he was wearing something that came off a sheep (laughs) right or came out of the ground and it wasn't it was man processed but it wasn't man-made and that to me is a form of seeking authenticity that i don't think a lot of us think about we think about comfort we think about affordability Neither of those things, I think, apply to a cotton and wool ensemble with a leather, leather-soled shoe. Alas. There was a moment, though, where that was the look, right? And that was... I think you and I ascribe to aspects of that, which is why I'm talking to you about it. I Yeah, it's the... the I think half of it has to do with also, I think a lot of people don't mind telling other people that they don't care how they look. Or rather, there isn't a way to judge me from what I wear. There shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. There's something and that's fine. But then why even get a haircut? Like why even wash your face? (laughs) What? Like everyone does a little bit to. You have to do something, right? Do you you take off pajamas and you go to work? I'm assuming. Or do you go in your pajamas? So it's everyone does something. You do something to present yourself. It just everyone stops at their own where they think it's appropriate, where they think they're getting the most return. And this they, might they, this and this might be the most controversial thing that you've ever said to me, but and that's saying something because of some of the stuff you've said to me. But you once yeah. said to me that the reason that we do that is to attract people to us. Yeah. Be it a male or a female. And the fact is that yeah, I'm doing it so that I can appear like the best version of myself. And in my mind, that's a person who looks put together. Yeah. And you know, and everyone has their comfort level on what they want to be, how they want to be. I I guess everyone wants to be perceived well and competent, right? Everyone, everyone wants that in their own life. So in my mind, the easiest and most egalitarian way to do that is to dress well. Whenever people come into Boulevardier room, I worked at Haberdasher, anytime it's something is style and they've never tried to dress up at all. And then they'd finally do for the first time. You can see a look on their face. Yeah. They, They feel better. I might, you don't have to, dress like this all the time, but it's nice to know that you can knock it out. Like everyone can knock it out of the park. Yeah. Was there an experience realizing that there's more to the world than just we're like, where the, where the world opened up. My mom moved here from the Philippines when she was like 10. So for me, I guess I've always felt like in between things. I never really felt full, fully like I'm part of this camp. I'm part of that. camp. I've always felt like an outsider, but not in a bad way. I always felt like I'm are you speaking specifically to being biracial or are you speaking to bicultural? Both and, and everything, just like identity and thinking of the world. I just always thought like, well, I remember getting the scantrons, like filling in your race. And I'm like, wait a second. Like, am I forsaking my mom or my dad? Like white, Asian or Pacific Islander. I'm like, what? I don't, so I just, I remember filling out other and being like, I guess I'm other. <laughs> and it was like, I thought it was just very interesting, but I never really took offense to it, but I was always, I just never felt like, I always felt like there was a, I never felt like the world was small. My, my mom was born in the Philippines and she moved here when she was around 10, the age of 10. And so her distinctly not, she eventually uh, became a U.S. citizen, but her not being initially a U.S. citizen, being from almost the other side of, of the world, being born on the other side of the world. It, I, I just never felt fully in one camp though. And we would hang out with my Filipino family. I wasn't, I didn't feel fully Filipino. I was like, because there were customs and sayings and 
obviously the language I didn't speak Tagalog. So I was like, okay, I'm not fully Filipino. But then when I would hang out with my dad's side or even just hang out with everyone else around me was pretty much of European descent where I grew up. I didn't feel fully in that camp either too. I, I was like, man, I'm, again, like it all comes down to like the Scantron they made you fill out. What is your race? And I was like, other, I'm like, I'm not really any of these. I was just, and then I'm like, why do they even care if it's a math test? <laughs> so I'm like, is this part of the test? Oh, Circumference, area, perimeter. And race, interesting. I didn't study that. I know I always, it's not that I didn't feel like the world was small, but I, I always knew that there was, so there was another side of the planet that did your mom did she filter a lot of stories in through you about growing up yeah here and there but she had a hard time she had a hard time when she moved here it was very difficult for her and and her siblings but yeah she she tried to make sure that we had a very that that we you know were comfortable and communicating and connecting with people yeah not not putting up any walls and being open just she made it so that just be open-minded and see who you meet but where were you born where did you grow up i was born in chicago my parents lived right behind the metro when they had me and then it's so appropriate <laughs> lived, right they said it would every wednesday thursday friday saturday they would be woken up from the beer bottles being thrown out at the end of the night at 4 a.m 5 a.m being thrown into the dumpster it's crap. and then after my sister was born oh no my sister was we they moved we moved to the west rogers park and then my sister and i was a little kid in kindergarten and then my sister was born and then we moved to michigan after my first brother was born and then after michigan we moved to wilmette and then we stayed there until i was in high school there seems to be like a lot of movement here and I'm transitioning deliberately into your move. I'm curious to hear how you square that for yourselves, you and your lovely wife, Nina, and your two boys. And I so, so desperately want for Alex Meyer to finally, once and for all, lay it out on the line, like the musician in you and talk about how you've hid that light under a bushel basket for so long and, and why you're allowing yourself to let your light shine now of all magical years. Yeah, I, I should actually start there. So when I moved to New York in 2010, I went with the intent of going to do music production. And I left Chicago at the time, like most people leave the city that they're in because I was going through a breakup. So I was like, <laughs> see you later, Chicago. <laughs> it was so bad. It was one of those breakups where this breakup is so bad that this whole city reminds me of this person. I got to get out. And so I went out into New York and it was, and I fell into fashion and it was, and I fell into photography. I had shot for a year and a half for fun. Just we'd go to a party and I would take photos. So it was just, and terrible photos. And for some reason I got picked to um, shoot fashion week for Tumblr when Tumblr was 2010. So it was a popular website at the time. And the, fashion director at the time who I'm still in touch with who's still just this guy Valentine he's one of the nicest and most supportive people I've met he picked me to shoot and I shot it and then from that just things kept snowballing you know when I moved back to Chicago I was creative director at Haberdash with no experience being a creative director but the whole time I was just saying my grandmother said like hey when I was younger and when I was certainly too young for this advice but opportunities are going to come your way and you have to say yes they're not going to be easy how do you describe Haberdash? Haberdash at its best was, I think, one of the most unique menswear retail stores in the world, I think. Why I do you think, say that? I think it was one of the only stores in the country where you had, you could get a wardrobe of premium brands and you couldn't find anything like that in the city or in, any, in, in any city, really. Because in New York, you get priced out. In L.A., it's all t-shirt and denim. But in Chicago, it's one of the only places where you could get a blue blazer, good denim, a white button-down shirt, great Alden boots, and walk out. You could walk out that night and go right to you know your dinner at Alinea in a whole new outfit. There, there was and there was you couldn't do that at Nordstrom. You couldn't find those brands. It was it was you really cool didn't exist in this town before Haberdash. And there were a couple places. Too. It was like it was cool. Bigsby man. Crothers and Saks Fifth Avenue and Barney's New York. You could do it, but you'd break the bank and you'd be doing it head to toe in one brand. 
and they make you feel stupid too. That's the other thing. That's a big <laughs> thing too. They would make you yeah. feel like an idiot, even well, though you spent like three G's. But haberdash would be inviting. They would, I, I always felt like an idiot in haberdash. So there you go. I mean, not that they were the, not that they were, not that we were like the top sales. We didn't have the top sales guys, but our sales guys did know our customers. They did recommend right. things, and they weren't pushy. That's the one thing. They were never pushy on stuff to to their own detriment. Yeah. I thought they should have been pushier, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. But again, that but. They didn't report. I mean, I had no control over that. And, but, but they were very, there were a lot of great reps there who really knew how to yeah. put their customers like and ate good books. The problem. So there's a downside to saying yes to everything is that you don't get to chart your own. <laughs> Let's go back to that. So your grandmother gave you this advice yeah, to say gotta, yes to everything. You got to say yes to everything. Not every opportunity is going to be easy, but you should right. run towards it. Cause someone's there's, and she's right. And it got me my foot in the door and it put me in the fashion world where in a position where I had, I had no experience, no background, but for some reason, and to this day, people enjoy working with me in the menswear world, whether I'm shooting their brand or I'm helping guide product or whatever it is. And that was great. But the problem was I knew always deep down, I was like, God, all I want to do is music. It's the only thing I would work all day long and all night long on music. When I'm on stage, I, I could play every night. I could play to one person. I could play to no people. It doesn't matter to me. I love it. But that never that was incongruent with men's as much as people say, Oh, I love music, big support of the music. I tell them, Hey, would you like to listen to my music? They say, no, no, I don't, I don't like music that way. I like music in a different way. Not, I don't want to see the person behind it. It's, it's really, I'm not, and I'm not trying to you know, denigrate anyone, but it's a, it's a weird disconnect. I had created or rather my, the perception of what I was capable of and what I wanted to do. People saw that and they said, you're not a musician. That's, that's not what you do. You're a menswear guy, you're a fashion guy, and you're going to stay there. And I was like, okay. And, and so I kept saying yes to stuff. And then I ended up opening a, a bar here. And I realized like I was just going way off course and eventually led to here where my, my wife in January, she goes, if you're not going to pursue music, you shouldn't think about it again. You shouldn't do it if you're not going to do it full time now. Like we've been good with money and we've been we're in a position now where we can take a little risk. And if you're not going to do it, don't think about it. And so I had to, and it shook me. I couldn't say I didn't even say anything back to her. I just looked at her like, and I walked out of there because she called me out. She and she was 100 right to. And this is why there's many reasons why I love her, but this is one of the biggest ones is that she knew I was hiding. I was hiding from what I knew I wanted to do. Yeah. And it took me like all night to work up the courage to tell her why. And I was like, I, I'm afraid of doing it because if I, I don't mind failing at stuff that's not my dream. I don't mind. I didn't mind getting shot down from clients from photography. Like, I don't care. Like, I just, this is all <laughs> bonus and for fun anyway. That's it's like, funny money. Says, right. It's even though it's technically my career, but it didn't bother me. But it will, I don't know if I'm that I mean, brave enough. Yeah. I didn't know if I was brave enough. And she, he was like, okay. <laughs> so sorry, you're going to do it or not? But yeah, I'll do it. But the problem is there's no music industry in Chicago, especially right now. So right. we either got to move to Austin or Nashville. And I don't want to live in Austin because it gets way too hot. <laughs> Weather. It's, it's the, like August and September are brutal. So the um, translation, the translation for me is precious, not fear. You're too precious with it. It's that thing that you've been chipping away at for so long that it will never really be realized in the way that you wanted it to be. Is that right? Yeah. And, and I thought I was, I guess it's weird because so many of my friends who I came up with playing music who are now very accomplished, well-respected musicians across the you know, various different disciplines. You were Taylor Swift's best friend. No. <laughs> <laughs> also props to her on re-releasing Fearless. Great business move. Super smart. Sounds great too. It's, it's everywhere. I was listening to, I listened on Saturday mornings to Casey Kasem because I have to, it's a compulsion. And they were advertising that she put that out yesterday and it's, or two days ago, whenever it was, it's great. Move for her. Great. Yeah. It sounds great. I was, but I was afraid that they were all going to say, Alex, you've been out too long. Like, <laughs> you're not gonna be able to do it. Or you like, why do you, why now? Just, just, just stop where you are, take the safe route. And I was like, I didn't want to do it. I had, if I reversed it, if I put myself, if it was any other industry, I would say F you to the gatekeepers and just walk in. I'm like, that's what I've been doing 
my whole life. Like, where's the side door? I'm just going to go in through the side door. I'm not going to go through the normal applicant entrance. That doesn't get me anywhere. I'm going to find a way to get in. And so I was like, why, am, why do I think that the music industry is gate kept in the same way? It's not. It can't be. It's just like any other industry. There's always a side door. And you just got to find the way in. And we're moving to Nashville. And hopefully three months, four months. So we'll see. A lot of Nashville is pretty popular right now. I don't know if you've heard. <laughs> so the housing market and the rental market are just it's a little crowded. But my brother lives there. And then my other brother lives in Indiana, not too far away, too. So I miss my uh, siblings as well. That's fantastic. The other thing that this forces is, and I've experienced this a number of times in my life, is it forces adventure. And adventure I define by the adventure doesn't really begin until the plans go awry. You have a plan, you lay it out the best you can, and then life just lays waste to it. And what happens in the fall of your plan, the falling apart of your plan, is really where improvisation and enthusiasm and excitement and that sweat that sweat equity really start to show up. And I'm excited to talk to you about your list uh, that you provided because there is some improvisation in there and there's a, a great quote that we'll share. But Alex, I've known you a long time now, almost 10 years. And in the decade or so that we've known one another, you and I have gotten together in various contexts for hamburgers and coffees. And in every context, I feel like there's a depth to the relationship that's added. And it's, it's feet. It's not inches. It's it's also nice that I can come to you in moments of mania when things are really wild, good or bad. And you have a uniquely natural way of ironing things out, finding the places to focus on the plateaus. Even if the plateaus are one toehold, it's, it's a unique gift. And I would love to understand a little bit about how you've, because this is a podcast about knowing yourself, how have you found that in yourself and how have you accentuated it? Do you think about things in those terms or is that something that you could talk about? Yeah. And thank you for that, by the way. That's um, very generous of you. And just one, a quick note on, on friendship though. And I think a lot of people get confused on what friendship is. And especially now, since you really only have mostly digital communication with all your friends, I think it's important to find out or rather try to be the best friend when your friend is having their worst time. That's when you need to be their best friend. Your best friend or your friend group, rather. They don't need you when things are going well because things are going well. <laughs> you build, you have your friends for you for when you can't carry the load. And that's really any relationship. So it's, it's your spouse or your boss or your goif- boyfriend and girlfriend or your siblings. Boyfriend and boyfriend? Yeah, boyfriend <laughs> and girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> girlfriend. But, but, they, but they, these people need you when they're low. Yeah. And, and that's something. It's I a sign of true character is showing up when... The chips are down when things are really not going well. Are you really my friend? And, yeah. and the thing is, we should always relish that opportunity too. I have the power to help my friend have a better day. My spouse have a better day. That's a great thing that you can do for someone. And then also you would hope that it gets paid back to you. Hope maybe you can come back your way because you'll need your friends at one, you know, one at least once a year. And you want to know who you can call on when things are, like you said, when the chips are down. Yeah, but I, now to I move on about finding yourself. So I'm just, just want a quick aside. I know, not at all. I don't um, know. So I, I suffered a lot of weird heartbreak and setbacks at a young age that really put me. I had to be okay with failure at a young age. Let's just say academically, things were tough for me when I was younger. We can leave it at that. But it would put me in situations where I was completely ostracized from everyone, all the social groups I had, and, and everything, like things that I would have built up, and then it was taken from me at the last moment. And it was, I had to find out what I was made of essentially. And once I, once you come back from the brink and I'm like the brink, the, the despair, you realize that you're, well, I'm actually stronger than I thought. And actually failure is not that bad. And I remember the crawling out of that pit is you got to just find something to grab anything. It doesn't matter if it's the lifeline, you just have to move up because you can't go back down. I remember, and that, and that feeling of failure and climbing up. I mean, that's not something that ever ends. You have, there's people in your career, you see them on the way up, you see them on the way down and, and you, and you're seeing their journey too. You watch people climb out of pits all the time. And so the way you climb out 
is gradually and you have to find something to hold on to. And so that's something that I had to teach myself. Don't, when you're climbing out, just build a repetition, keep climbing every day and focus on that. And then once you climb out, you don't fall as deep next time. You don't, and you catch yourself before you even fall further. You, and, and then the climb becomes fun. Then you start to, then the climb becomes part of your journey. You mm-hmm. start enjoying the climb. You start finding for new pits to climb out of. As, as you get older, you can't be as risky and your time resources are much different. So you have to plan for your, you know, you have to reduce the daring nature a little yeah. bit. On a scale of one to 100, how risk averse would you say you you are presently? Like 100 being very risk averse or 100 yeah. being, I love risk. Yeah. I guess I- 100 being very risk averse. Oh, I would put myself at a, I don't know, I have two boys now. So I guess it depends on the scenario. Probably 20 Still, or 30. So I don't, I like risk. I think risk is good. As long as you build a, some kind of, you got to just like with anything in life, especially, but especially with investing, you got to know when the, what is your point of no return? And you got to know that you, you pull that shoot that so you can get out. If you lose everything that's on the table, are you okay with that? And what's your plan out of that? As long as you can plan from worst case and know what your worst case is, then you can always scale up from there. Or rather, you can build from that worst case scenario, but hopefully you can have a trajectory that's much different than starting from that worst case scenario, especially once you have kids. You want stability, but you know with stability, you're not going to, it's hard to grow when you have, st- when it's just very static. And so you have to take small risks throughout your life to grow yourself. But in your 20s, you should be taking outrageous risks. You should mm-hmm. be taking risks that are unreasonable, that people would say, don't do that. I did so many things where people said, don't do it. <laughs> no one's going to show up. No one's going to buy it. No one's going to do it. And they did it and they worked. Some of them didn't work, but it didn't matter. It doesn't can matter. You, no can you think of any risks that really panned out well in your 20s? Yeah. Just moving to New York, even though it was insane for me and it was physically like the toll it had on me physically and mentally was outrageous for only one year in New York. I was like, I can't believe people live in this city. (laughs) I can't believe people date in New York. That's actually the biggest. That's right. I cannot believe that people have any time for dating. Now, obviously this is pre Tinder when I lived there. Tinder, I think was just made for New Yorkers. They don't have time to go on dates. They just want to skip (laughs) to the fun part. Um, yeah. And so I get it if you're a New Yorker. But yeah, dating. I mean, it's the express lanes there, though. And like everything that's yeah. there, like you're, you, one year there is five years in most other cities. And, and, that, and that's really how I got my foot in the door in any men's were stuff. Fashion <laughs> stuff in New York. Wow. I was like, there's like, you know, 50,000 people that do fashion stuff in New York, maybe more, maybe a million. It's a pretty big industry. Yeah. Um, I'm like, there's a lot of people that do it. But that's and, the thing about New York yeah. that, every, and, uh, Every year, New York asks something of you, mm-hmm. right? And, and because it's so competitive, you do have to sacrifice one thing to the city of New York every year, whether that's your health, physical, either physical or mental, or your career or your relationships, or something has to get sacrificed if you live in that city. And so you never really get a... But what it gives you is a career that's outrageous and right. a pedigree that's outrageous. You may not have your firstborn son anymore, but you... But there's, a, there's just a, there's a, there's an offering you have to get. <laughs> But Abraham, right? Yeah, as many what is it, generations as there are stars in the sky. I'm unwilling to make that trade. There are plenty of people that are willing to make that trade. I have to. So, Alex, I think we're at the point in the conversation where it's time to talk about what's in your cookies this week. What did you watch, read, listen to, shop for? What's in your digital cookies? And as always, we'll start with what's your favorite cookie? The Oreo, I think to me, here's what I think a cookie should work. And right. Okay. Cookie should, if I eat a sandwich, this cookie should be able to be eaten afterwards. Okay. I should be able to put a cookie in my pocket and not have it completely just fall apart. Okay. I should be able to dunk it in milk and not have it fall apart. And I should be able to hand one to someone without it being an ordeal. Like, oh, oh watch out. It should be something that is, and also it should not stain your fingers. It should not have the perfect cookie. There are others, there are a lot of specialty cookies. There's a lot, it's a wide breath. But I think the Oreo, just for its ut- the utility of the Oreo, you can dip it, you can scoop peanut butter around it, which I like. Tastes good with milk, tastes good with water, tastes good after a sandwich. That's I've, why I want. I think the, the Oreo just. Yep, so, I've been known to I've been known to destroy so a ream of Oreos with just swiping them around a, a 
wide mouth tub of peanut butter. On my show, I always give my guests the opportunity to ask a question and answer it themselves. And the question that you asked was, if you could remove any site from the internet permanently, what would you remove? Yeah, I, and uh, I think if we removed Google's search function, I think the world would be, it would be a net improvement to the world. Because we're outsourcing our, we're outsourcing our relationships to some server farm in Columbus, Ohio, or Oregon. The Google search replaced the guy that knew stuff or, the, or your mom that knew something or your older sister who knows where to find the cool bar, right? We outsourced our relationships to an algorithm. And I think it's your neighbors, your friends become less important when Google can tell you what is right. Shortening the distance of information, right? Information becomes that much more easily gained and garnered. I see it in my kids all the time. They, well, it's, they, it's not rooted. That's when right. You, when you value information, you value that relationship. Now I don't value the information or the relationship I have to Google. You would ask people about Google, what are your thoughts on Google as a company? They would say net negative. Yeah. How often do you use Google all the time? That's like a perverse relationship, right? If I were to answer your question, I would say I would, if I could get rid of one thing, what's the question? Get rid of one website. One website. Like, oh my God. No records, no archive. All plat out. No further comment, <laughs> your honor. Thing comes back to bite me all the time. All right. Alex, what did you read this week? I read the stories that I tell to my son, but I also re- been reading another thing too. I've been reading. So my son is big on stories. We tell stories during mealtime. So it's Batman and Justice League or it's Rocky Space Adventure. We come up with different planets for him to land on and he explores and investigates the planet and helps. Oh, wow. We need something then he flies to a new planet, like a Flash Gordon kind of thing. And he loves that. And then sometimes I'll write it down and read it. And I'm always like, yeah, it's actually not a bad story. I like that story. But what I've been working on recently is a screenplay with one of my buddies. And it's pretty funny. And it's like a comedy buddy movie. So I can't really dive in more than that. But is it set in present day? It's set in the 90s. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait. I, I would love real, to read that. The, the last real decade there was. <laughs> right? I, I think everything went downhill it. when I got to select my AOL Instant Messenger name. I think that's where, that was the demise of, of society. Once you could set an away message so, <laughs> so flippantly, you know. Caller ID. <laughs> Postal service lyrics on this or Dave Matthews man lyrics. So once you had that, yeah, things started to go down. What did, Alex, what did you watch this week? Uh, Barry Harris has these jazz, he's a jazz professor and he's awesome jazz instructional videos on YouTube from his seminars. And most people are like, wow, that's not very interesting, but he's so funny and he's so entertaining. And the way he looks at music and the way you can see the students and they're not kids, they're, this is like a graduate level course. So they're yeah. professional musicians and he's blowing their minds and he's not saying things that are, like contradictory or even like that are like blasphemy within the music industry or music um, theory. But the way he explains things is so interesting and so funny. I watched some of that 45 minute clip you sent the way that he showcases how by doing this work, you will enjoy the playing so much more. I found a great quote of his that goes right in line with no first who you are. And it is that the minute that you make a mistake, that's improvisation. I love that. It's through failure that you actually learn. You can't learn by being perfect. Another important lesson of parenthood, like it's okay. It's okay that the clay didn't end up looking like you thought it was going to look when you started molding it in your hands. Alex, what did you listen to this week? Earth, Wind & Fire, Gratitude. It's the first half is alive. It's a live concert that they did. It's one of the first albums I listened to nonstop in high school and I forgot about it until the month ago and I've been listening to it as I've been doing what did you discover in it in high school I'm so curious so I was in I played trumpet that was my first instrument and I was in jazz band on Midwest Young Artists and I love and I just picked it up again last week so I'm starting to take lessons again which has been fun that's awesome Um, but then after writing actually your track and writing more horn parts, I needed more reference music. And I was like, oh, I had Earth, Wind & Fire. And I was like, wait a second, Gratitude. That's a great album. And I listened to that as I was mixing your album. I was like, to be like, what is it? What does a great horn section sound like? How do they play? When do they breathe? When does it hit? What does it make you feel? And that's what I tried to catch. And then I just listened to the album nonstop. I listened to when I was working out the other day. It can even work. There's not many bands where you can dance with your wife to it 
to the, their music. You can work out to it. You can edit to it. You can have it in the background or you can be active listening. It's like what bands can come yeah. back around. I listened to it for the first time after you sent it and it's an incredible party record. It would just be perfect for, as you said, background, having scintillating conversation around a dinner table, maybe a little stand-up cocktail hour, but then there's like danceable tracks and then there's some really lovely ballads to it. It's awesome. Yeah. And the last track is Can't Hide Love, which is, I think, one of the best pop songs ever written. What did you shop for this week? There's a guitar that I've been pining after. I, and, and I sold this guitar. I used to own this guitar and I sold it like a moron. I sold this to get my first camera, actually. So it wasn't really a moronic move. I needed the camera. I had no money because I took a gig that I, and I didn't have a camera. <laughs> one of those kind of things. It's a PRS Custom 24. And it, it's like the perfect modern guitar. It's not a vintage guitar in any stretch of the imagination, but it, I think it's the best modern guitar you can get. And the S2 version, there's a pre-order at Chicago Music Exchange, and I'm considering buying it. With I'm considering buying it. I gotta there's a, to it's beautiful. The, the link you sent, it has maple top and mahogany body. Incredible. Birds. Oh my God. And it's flames, burnt amber. Oh my God, it's a beautiful guitar. And it just is so fun and so easy to play now a lot of guitars make you work for it like a les paul it says can you play me do you know how and same with an actual vintage strat like a, if you pick up a 64 strat it's gonna be like yeah there's no way you can make me sound good but the prs does not it doesn't embarrass you it won't ever try to embarrass you <laughs> <laughs> all right now we're to the uh, proustian questionnaire portion of our rapid fire questions here at the end if you were a cocktail what kind of cocktail would you be I'd be a Vesper because it had its moment in the sun. It was popular and it faded from relevance for a little bit, but it's still well respected. I was like, I guess this is like the highly complimentary version of what I think I would be. I would love if people said he's like a Vesper, but they're probably like, he's like a rusty nail. It's a really just pleasant drink. And I've had a lot of fun nights with that. Yeah, you explained it. <laughs> you explained it brilliantly. Whose face would you like to see on the dollar bill and why? Jimi Hendrix. He is, I think, one of the most influential Americans that's ever lived. He changed not just guitar. He changed just what, did it, what does it mean to fully succumb to the art? If you could bottle Jimi Hendrix in one experience, it would be when Peppers came out. When Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band came out the next week, like three days later, or maybe it was even less than that. He was playing it on stage. The most intricate, largest concept album of its kind ever and the guy boiled it down in like a weekend. Figured it out. Look, no look big this. deal. It goes yeah. like this. Yeah. <laughs> Sergeant Pepper brought his band to play. And you're like, wait, he's doing it. Not only is he doing it live, he's doing it in front of Paul McCartney, John Lennon, Eric Clapton. It always blows my mind. And there's one great quote that John Mayer has about Jimi Hendrix is every guitarist is a failed version of Jimi Hendrix. They always <laughs> they, they try to be Jimi Hendrix and they fall and wherever they fall. That's that's who they are. But we're all just failed versions of him. Like, what article of clothing is your battle armor? Any of my suits from Boulevardier. What's Boulevardier? Uh, oh, Boulevardier is a custom suiting company in Chicago run by Zach and Kirsten Utick. And I am their creative director right now. And I've been shooting for them for a long time since before they opened. I used to work with Zach back at Suit Supply, Chicago. And I have, anytime I wear those suits, I'm, I'm like, I can't do wrong. I just can't. Like, I'm the best when I, when I look at myself in the mirror. They don't fit right now. So I hopefully <laughs> don't have to go into battle for the armor. But you're getting back in shape. It's all yeah, good. I'll get there. I'll get what there. song or movie is your favorite background noise? Chet Baker. Chet Baker's whole discography is just. There's something psychological about it. It's so soothing between his voice, his style of playing is, especially at the time, it is when everyone was pushing things in a really intense direction with bebop, he was very melodic and tried to relate. And you can hear the sadness in the way he plays the trumpet. It's very unique, but it's not overwhelming sadness. It's not um, like buzzkill sadness. Okay, what's your life's motto? Oh, uh, how hard could it be? People say Oh, you're going to try this? You're going to try that? I, that sounds crazy. I was like, yeah, how, how hard could it be? And it's always way harder than you think. But <laughs> yeah. if you think it's not going to be hard, then it's easy. Yeah. As long as you go in feet first, don't dive in. Don't get your head all screwed up by it. But well, well you'll never do it if you think it's hard. Yeah. And so, yeah, let's, let's, hear you, let's hear you play a little bit more, Alex. Great. Thanks. <clears throat> 
Let's just bask in that moment for a second. That was so good. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. One of the joys of my life getting to spend time with you. So thank you so much for, for your time today, Alex. Hey, thanks for having me, man. We'll do it again soon. We'll write some more music. All right. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alex Meyer. You can and should follow along with his journey on Instagram at SuperDanger. That's at S-U-P-E-R-D-A-N-G-E-R. If you are listening to this, live in Nashville or know someone who does and would like to get in touch with Alex, reach out to him or reach out to me. I'd be happy to make the introduction. I'll have a full update on how my family and I have handled the first quarter of 2021 next week, and I'll be sharing a look ahead at some of the guests we're lining up for the rest of the year. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you're all staying safe. Keep working hard to know first who you are. Thank you. This is the No First Podcast. The No First Podcast is a production of All Plat Out. Thanks to Marla, Stella, and Ruby. Stay safe, stay healthy, and know first who you are elucidate. <laughs> 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 <laughs>